Again, Dr. Hill, uh, studying or practicing in Austin, Texas in pediatric dermatology. Um, we'll be up in one second. Thank you, Dr. Hill. Well, hi again. So I'm, I'm the closer. Thanks for, for sticking it out. Um, so this lecture uh, is about hyperhidrosis, which is my passion. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm, I'm the sweat doctor. Um, you you got to have one, right, for, for a problem. There's got to be a solution. So, um, And actually, before I start this, um, I just wanted to give the smallest plug for something that's totally unrelated. Uh, but I just was, uh, I just am coming from a retreat for um, the Xeroderma Pigmentosum Family um, Support Group Retreat. And it's this really great organization uh, of kids and families who have XP. Um, and it's really very small, but they're always looking for people to, um, to, to get involved. Uh, and so I, I thought I would, I would send a, a plug out for them. Uh, they have a great website, and if you just Google XP Family Support Group, you'll, you'll find them. Uh, so we'll start with hyperhidrosis. So again, uh, I have no financial relationships or conflicts of interest to disclose, um, and I am going to talk about some uh, off-label or non-FDA approved uses of some of the medications and products. Uh, so the first question is sort of, you know, why, why do we care? Why do we even talk about hyperhidrosis? Um, and it's because people pay attention, people notice, um, People are taking pictures. They're not necessarily taking pictures of you, but they're taking pictures of Nicole Kidman, and they're putting her pictures of her sweaty pits uh, on the internet. Uh, there's a site uh, that's called celebritysweating.com, um, and you can go online and check out pictures of your favorite politicians and, and uh, actors and actresses in, in all of their uh, unfortunate sweat moments. And, and it's, you know, it's kind of a funny thing, celebritysweat.com, the reality is it was started by a group of patients and people with hyperhidrosis, uh, and it was actually intended to be um, sort of a, a comfort to people with hyperhidrosis, you know, like, hey, look, even Nicole Kidman uh, sweats in public and, and gets caught with sweaty pits. So it sort of turned into, you know, more of a making fun of people, unfortunately, but it, uh, it was started with a good purpose, I think. So hyperhidrosis is defined as excessive sweating beyond which is necessary for thermoregulation of the body. It remains a very poorly understood disorder. We can categorize hyperhidrosis uh, in several ways, primary versus secondary sweating, focal versus generalized sweating. Primary disease is almost always focal. Uh, it's idiopathic, focal, it's most often bilateral, and it's usually symmetric, meaning it's the same on both sides of the body. Uh, patients sweat from their axilla. Almost 50% of patients with hyperhidrosis have axillary hyperhidrosis. Patients also have palmoplantar disease. Uh, some have craniofacial. But really, you can have excessive sweating from any, any area of the body or multiple areas of the body. Secondary hyperhidrosis is predominantly generalized, and it's usually secondary to an underlying medical condition or a medication that the patient may be taking. The estimated overall prevalence in the U.S. of primary hyperhidrosis is about 2.8% or almost 8 million people. And to put this into perspective for you, psoriasis has a prevalence of about 2.2%. Uh, if you ask you know, somebody off the street, if you ask 10 people off the street if they've heard of, of psoriasis, a lot of people have. A lot of people will say, oh yeah, the heartbreak of psoriasis, yeah, I know about that. But if you ask people about hyperhidrosis, nobody has any idea what you're talking about. And unfortunately, 
that sort of also translates to, to medical providers and, and people who should know a lot about it because uh, they should be uh, wanting to help their patients. Only 38% of uh, the people in the U.S. in some of these surveys consult a doctor, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But the overall result of that is that the disorder is underreported to doctors, it's underdiagnosed by doctors, and both of those things lead to it being a remarkably undertreated condition. A lot of patients have a positive family history, almost 35 to more than 50% of patients. It's more likely to have a positive family history if your sweating starts before the age of 20. There's probably an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, but we're not really sure about that. The average age of onset of hyperhidrosis is 14 to 25 years of age, but prepubertal onset is more likely to be palmoplantar, plantar, and it really is seen in very young children. Definitely have patients report that their toddlers always have very clammy hands, or that even when it's not hot outside, they walk around on the linoleum or the tile and they leave sweaty footprints. Um, it's even been reported in infancy. Of a study, in a study of 850 patients uh, with primary hyperhidrosis, more than 60% remarked that they had had their excessive sweating for as long as they can remember. Another group responded that it started in puberty, and only 5% reported that it started in adulthood. Usually those patients have secondary hyperhidrosis if it's starting in adulthood. Uh, there is often a significant delay, as much as 10 years uh, in presentation, and a lot of times that's because of um, embarrassment over the condition, not really understanding that it is an actual condition. Um, you know, your, your grandma tells you, hey, you know, oh, look at how sweaty you are, you're so healthy. Uh, I mean, that, that gets reinforced all the time, both in society as well as by our families and even by, by providers. Uh, females present more frequently, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, more females have hyperhidrosis. It's just that they uh, reach a point where they want to do something about it, sometimes faster than men do. Men are more likely to have craniofacial sweating compared to women. There is some evidence that there can be regression over time of hyperhidrosis symptoms, uh, but it's really based mainly on the fact that we rarely see it in the elderly. So a little bit about the, the background, the pathophysiology of sweating. We have about four to five million sweat glands on the body. A person who's well acclimated can secrete up to three to four liters of sweat per hour, which is a lot when you think about it. It's up to 10 liters of sweat per day. The majority of our sweat glands are eccrine glands, which are uh, fully functional at birth. They're, president, they're present on our palms, soles, and in our underarms. They secrete an aqueous, odorless fluid. Uh, the glands, uh, the, the sweat glands are uh, innervated by postganglionic sympathetic fibers, and they use acetylcholine as their major neurotransmitter. This will be important a little bit later when we talk about some of the therapies. Glands of patients with hyperhidrosis are the same as patients without hyperhidrosis with regard to how many they are, where they're found on the body, what size they are, how dense they are. When we look under the microscope, the glands look the same, the tissue looks the same. So it's really not a problem of, it's really not a structural problem of the glands. We think that it's probably more either an overproduction of sweat um, with a normal amount of signal or too much signal telling the body to make sweat. But we don't really know. The exact mechanism is unknown. So channeling a little bit to talk about focal hyperhidrosis for a while. Um, primary focal, hydrosis, focal hyperhidrosis is usually is idiopathic. 
uh, by definition. Uh, and then secondary um, can also be focal, although like I said, most often it's generalized. When focal sweating is secondary, um, it's usually, um, there's usually a very specific underlying cause. Um, so Fry syndrome uh, is, is auriculotemporal uh, sweating. A lot of times that occurs after you've messed around with the parotid gland uh, and you'll have gustatory sweating uh, right in that area kind of over the parotid on the face. There are some principal diagnostic criteria for focal, for primary focal hyperhidrosis, uh, although when you're in the office and you're deciding if someone has hyperhidrosis, this really, this isn't necessarily what you're using, but the, these criteria do exist. So they define it as focal, visible, and excessive sweating that has been going on for greater than six months and doesn't have an apparent cause. So basically it's not secondary. And there are uh, several other criteria, and it has to meet two, two of the following, uh, but often meets more. So bilateral and symmetric, impairing daily activities, happening more than once a week, starting before you're 25, positive family history, and doesn't necessarily happen during sleep. Generalized hyperhidrosis, as I said, is usually secondary. It can be uh, related to a lot of different things, physiologic states, pregnancy, obesity, fever. It can be due to infections, malaria, TB, disease associated. Uh, with things like malignancy, neurologic disorders, endocrinologic disorders. Uh, Drug-associated uh, secondary hyperhidrosis uh, is, a, is a big cause of, of, uh, uh, of secondary hyperhidrosis. The list of uh, medications that can induce excessive sweating is huge. I mean, it's, it's pages and pages. Uh, I just listed out some of the, uh, the medications that we use commonly that you probably don't know or don't think of as, as being ones that can cause hyperhidrosis. And then there's also this, this thing, uh, this concept of regional hyperhidrosis, so it's not necessarily um, focal. Uh, it's not necessarily focal in how we think of focal uh, hyperhidrosis being both of your axilla or both of your palms. Um, but regional hyperhidrosis uh, can be something like Hexel's hyperhidrosis, where you sweat from your groin, uh, or localized unilateral hyperhidrosis, which is usually a 10-centimeter uh, patch of area on the body, on the forearm or the forehead, where you have excessive sweating. We don't know why people get that one. Uh, and some of the others. Fry syndrome kind of falls into this, this regional uh, regional hyperhidrosis. And Fry syndrome actually, as I said, is oftentimes reported after parotid surgery, messing around with the parotid, but is also reported uh, as a familial um, inheritance pattern. So that one can kind of go both ways. When you're seeing a patient who complains of excessive sweating uh, in the office, it's important to do a really detailed history and physical exam. Um, you're asking about location of their sweating, duration, where on the body, are there triggers that they know about, is there family history, when did it start, um, how long has it been going on, all of that, that stuff. And then you really need to do a really very detailed review of systems, and the, the point of that is trying to rule out secondary causes. Once you do a, a good review of systems, most things are gonna, gonna pop up on there if it, should be, uh, if it should be sort of telling you that you need to do further workup into something. 
And if the review of systems is, is pretty clear and, and everything else seems you know, pretty normal and to be going pretty well, then you really don't need to do more workup uh, for their sweating. Uh, there aren't necessarily labs or any studies that are recommended to further elucidate the sweating. Sometimes uh, I'll have patients come into hyperhidrosis clinic and they've made other stops uh, before, before they've been to dermatology. Um, they, you know, they saw the pediatrician who maybe sent them to neurology and you know, they've been other places and people come in having had all, all kinds of nerve conduction tests and all, you know, all kinds of lab work and stuff and, and it, it really just is unnecessary uh, unless there are certain things in the review systems that point you to, uh, to something that needs to be worked up further, then definitely you need to pursue it. One of the things about their sweating that you do need to delve into further, though, is how it affects their quality of life. Uh, so I'm going to speak to that for, uh, for a couple of slides here. Quality of life in patients with hyperhidrosis uh, is really, it's affected. Every avenue of their quality of life is affected by their sweating social, physical, leisure, their occupation, school, every, every tiny part of their life is affected by, by excessive sweating. It can be socially disabling. They avoid interaction and physical contact with other people, intimacy, uh, shaking hands, holding hands in church, um, in children, high-fiving and, and holding hands during games and things like that. And it can be really very socially ostracizing for patients. They become self-conscious. They be, uh, have decreased self-confidence. Uh, sweating also leads to actual physical discomfort for a lot of patients. They have damp clothing. It becomes stained. They're embarrassed. They need to change their clothing either uh, during the day. They also need to replace their clothing more frequently because it becomes actually ruined. Um, a lot of patients with axillary hyperhidrosis can wear a white shirt or, or button-down shirt. I mean, you wear it one time uh, and then you have enough staining of the underarms or of other parts of the shirt as well that it's, I mean, it's, it's just done. You have to replace a shirt every time you wear it. And that, I mean, that cost adds up really quickly. There is also an increased risk of certain cutaneous infections, intertrigo, pitted, uh, pitted keratolysis, some folliculitis, uh, which you can imagine in a damp or macerated area. And then brome hydrosis, so an increased odor um, can be problematic for some patients, but really just the perceived problem of brome hydrosis can be devastating to some patients, whether or not they, sm they smell, they think they smell, and that can be enough to keep some people at home. Patients' leisure activities can be affected. They may not be able to play a musical instrument that they want to, playing sports, holding a, ba you know, holding a bat, throwing a baseball or a football. Um, if they perform under the lights on a stage, it can be, you know, they can be sweating so much that they can't actually you know, perform or do whatever they're gonna do. It can be a really big deal with hunting. I mean, that's just a safety issue. Uh, and crafts and needlework, any kind of fine, you know, motor stuff that you're doing with your fingers, they just literally can't even hold on to the stuff that they're trying to work with. In the same way that that sort of uh, uh, manual problems, uh, patients have a lot of uh, a lot of a hard time with school or with occupational stuff. So, kids will tell me that they have a hard time gripping or holding their pen or pencil. Uh, I have a five-year-old uh, who was actually being sent to special ed classes because he wasn't learning how to write. Uh, he couldn't hold his pencil. I mean, he, 
he, you know, he had all the stuff. He had the physical, the, the strength and the grip, and he knew what to do. He just literally couldn't hold his pencil, so he wasn't able to get down on paper what his teachers wanted him to get down on paper. And you know, a little bit of treatment, and, and the whole thing was, was solved. But it took way too long to get, you know, to get him from, from that to what the actual problem was, to getting a, a really very easy solution to it. Uh, I also saw a, uh, she was a 20-year-old, I guess, but she was in pastry school, you know, to become a professional pastry chef, and she was having trouble with her knives, which, you know, I mean, that's a really, it's a really big deal for someone, uh, both safety-wise and, you know, being able to perform the duties of your profession. Of 345 patients in one study who presented for treatment, 63% of them indicated that uh, their hyperhidrosis causes strong to moderate impairment of their work performance. In teenagers, it affects what careers they choose. Um, they might not choose something that is in front of the public eye. They might not choose something that requires a uniform that they can't control. Um, all kinds of things uh, uh, are affected by it. It really is emotionally disabling uh, to people, and I know I'm sort of uh, repeating some of the same stuff here, but just trying to drive home uh, the, the points of it. They feel less confident, frustrated. They actually uh, become clinically depressed. 90% um, of patients in one study had social embarrassment, and another had psychologic difficulties that were attributed to their hyperhidrosis. Um, this is really especially problematic in, in my, my demographic. Um, children and young adults, because um, it's when they're developing their sense of self. I mean, it's hard enough to be a teenager. It's really, it sucks to be a teenager. Um, and, you know, when you start out sort of not even on a level playing field with everybody else, um, it, it's really hard to figure out who you are and how you fit into things. Um, and, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, these kids decide that they don't fit into things, and they just, they just avoid social interaction. Uh, I do a lot of work with the International Hyperhidrosis Society, and uh, we get a lot of uh, emails from patients uh, uh, through the website. And these are all quotes that have uh, come either from that or from patients of mine. I'm so embarrassed uh, by my sweaty hands. I've never gone on a date. I sweat so bad, it's ruining my life. Uh, I try to do my schoolwork, and my paper gets wet. It disintegrates. You can imagine that when you're taking a test, you're especially nervous. And so at this, you know, in that time when you really need everything to be working well, that's the time when your sweating is worse and, and everything kind of falls apart. I'm so stressed and anxious every day, worrying about my sweating. I hate my hyperhidrosis. Please, please help me. Uh, and there really are things that you can do for them, easy things that you can do for them. Um, which is sort of what we're going to transition uh, into this next part of the talk. Uh, so when you're assessing hyperhidrosis, it's really mainly assessing those quality of life measures. Uh, there are quantitative measures, such as the hyperhidrosis disease severity scale, which we'll talk about uh, a little bit in a couple slides, um, some other quality of life indices. And then there are some quantitative measures that are cool and they're used in studies. Well, they're, they're cool if you're a sweat nerd. Um, and they're used in studies, but they're really not terribly helpful in clinic. Um, you know, weighing a filter paper that's been uh, put, placed in someone's underarm to see how heavy it is with the sweat, that kind of thing. Uh, the vapometer, though, I'll say, is it's kind of a newer device that measures the transepidermal water loss on the surface of the skin. And some people are using this in their office because it actually gives you 
um, a number, a quantifiable number, to assign to someone's amount of sweating. I have mixed feelings about the, the vapometer and, and things like that. Um, it's a really expensive tool that not very many people are going to be able to have in their office. Uh, and you know, my, my hesitance, my fear is that the more that we, the more that some people use those tools, the more that insurance companies and the FDA are going to start making them part of the diagnostic criteria for things, and then part of the, oh, you know, well, no, we, we're not going to pay for your therapy because you didn't, you know, you don't have your your vapometer score, um, and you know, I mean, this really should be something that you can diagnose and get treatment for your patient without having to have a fancy tool, which is how it stands now. Uh, so the Dermatology Life Quality Index uh, is a reliable, validated tool that's uh, used to assess the impact of hyperhidrosis. Um, it's also used uh, to assess the dermatologic impact of lots of other things. Um, it has 10 questions in 10 domains. Um, there are four responses of numbers, 0 to 3, with a total score of 30. A higher score indicates a more negative impact on the patient's life. This is the most frequently used tool uh, in, in, and instrument in randomized control trials uh, in dermatology. It allows us to compare dermatologic diseases to each other or one dermatologic disease to itself before and after treatment, that kind of thing. So um, in, in multiple studies, the DLQI score for hyperhidrosis is, uh, has been 18, somewhere between 10 and 18, so it, it varies kind of, but uh, 18. Uh, and you, when you compare that to other disorders that we know are, are bad and, and you know, really affect patients, like pruritus is 9, psoriasis is about 12, and atopic dermatitis is 12 and a half. So you know, as far as how much this ranks up there uh, with how bothersome it is to patients, it's, you know, it's, it's at the top, it's above the top. Um, and the good thing or the unfortunate thing, depending on how you look at it, is that with hyperhidrosis, as compared to things like psoriasis and atopic dermatitis and pruritus, we have really easy things to do about it, and, and it's been shown that you can make a far, a far more significant improvement in their DLQI than you can for some of the other disorders. So with just a little bit of education and a little bit of therapy, you can you know, make somebody who's an 18 you know, down into the single digits, which, which is a huge deal. I mean, it's a huge deal for these patients. So the HDSS um, is a really easy, really nice uh, questionnaire that you can use easily in the office. Um, it's a qualitative measure. It's based on the severity of the hyperhidrosis uh, for the patient based on their report. Uh, so it's a four-point scale. A three or four on the scale indicates severe disease. And the HDSS has been used, um, has been used by the FDA as one of the, the criteria uh, for defining severe hyperhidrosis in getting things like Botox and some other things covered. So this is, this is what we've been, been using, and, and this is, I think, a really good thing because anyone can do this. So this is an example of the HDSS uh, scale. Uh, number, number one, you know, my sweating is never noticeable, never interferes with my daily activities. I mean, that doesn't really sound like hyperhidrosis at all, let alone mild hyperhidrosis. But when you look down at three or four, it's, you know, it's barely tolerable. It's intolerable. It always affects me. Um, on my patient intake questionnaires, we have them fill this out. I mean, it's, it's such a fast thing, but it's, it's been validated such that an 80% uh, um, 
a two-point improvement uh, in the hyperhidrosis, the HDSS scale, is an 80% improvement when you do actually do those quantitative measures by gravimetry and things like that. So why is it important to do these, these uh, QOL assessments in these patients? It's important for us to understand, you know, who we're treating, so why, you know, wh what is this patient dealing with and, and what are the avenues that I'm going to need to use to make their sweating better. Um, it also helps us to understand why we need to work on uh, finding new treatments, why we need to work on knowing what the existing treatments are for patients. Um, and just, you know, just to understand the, the experience that our patients are having. This is a letter from a patient of mine. He was a 19-year-old kid. Um, I had seen him for palmoplantar sweating. Um, I mean, he was, he was distraught. He was stricken. He had a hard time driving because he couldn't hold the steering wheel. He was made fun of. I mean, he just, just so much problem this kid had because of his sweating. And he tried to join the armed forces, um, and he was not allowed. Uh, he was not allowed to join the armed services because of his hyperhidrosis. And his poor father, who had been such a good advocate for his son in trying to find him doctors, trying to find him, you know, someone who could, could help him with his problem. Um, his father, uh, because he felt so bad uh, that he wasn't allowed to do this thing, this, that, you know, join the armed forces, he wrote a letter um, to the armed forces and, you know, he said, please don't take this, uh, his medical history is so out of context. The condition um, was merely an annoyance for him, not a limitation. It's not that this was a big deal to Andrew, especially now. It was his dad's own deliberate way in tackling the problems as a father, looking for solutions. Um, it, you know, I mean, it just it affects families, and, and, uh, and it really doesn't have to. Uh, so this is just sort of a, a treatment overview slide. We're going to go through, uh, go through these therapies and, and uh, talk about things that you guys can actually do in the office. So almost always I start with topical treatments for hyperhidrosis. Um, for the most part, they're, they're cheaper, they're easier, they're not invasive, they're not systemic, they're easily available to the patients. Uh, there are a lot of different uh, classes of chemicals that have been used over the years for, uh, for treating excessive sweating. Aluminum and zirconium salts are the most common. Uh, in Canada, um, they use topical uh, anticholinergic medications, topical glycopyrrolate. Um, which you can get for your patients uh, if you do the, um, the Canadian pharmacy uh, websites. Um, other than the metallic salts that we really know about now and the ones that we use now, uh, the others are really not commercially available uh, anymore, so I'm not, I'm not even going to talk about those. Um, I will say that um, over-the-counter, the, the clinical strength antiperspirants um, that are a little bit newer to the market they can be as effective, um, they can be very effective solitary agents for mild symptoms of hyperhidrosis. And even people with some moderate hyperhidrosis, um, most often they contain something uh, called aluminum zirconium uh, trichlorohydrex. Um, that's, the, uh, that's the ingredient in those, which is, it, this is different than certain dry, which is also an over-the-counter product. Um, uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, People don't necessarily use the clinical strength antiperspirants properly. Um, they're intended to be used uh, at nighttime or twice daily, uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about uh, when we uh, get more into the topicals. 
So aluminum chloride uh, is the most common salt solution uh, that's been used for hyperhidrosis. Uh, as you guys heard, um, they started to use it a really long time ago, beginning of the 1900s. Um, it, uh, it causes an obstruction of the distal sweat duct. It forms a plug that blocks the output of sweat, so it doesn't actually change how much the patient is sweating. It just doesn't let it come out. Uh, and then the sweat uh, that has been produced gets resorbed by the body instead of coming onto the surface of the skin. Uh, normal sweat release returns with epidermal renewal, which is just a fancy way of saying you have to, you have to repeat treatment. Um, otherwise, your sweating is just going to start again. Uh, and again, for the, for the sweat nerds, there are these uh, tape stripping studies, which are really cool. So they, uh, they treated an area uh, with, with the products and got it to a point where they weren't sweating anymore. And they literally took a piece of scotch tape and applied it and took it off and applied it and took it off applied it and took it off right to the same spot, and they stripped just the, the very superficial epidermis. And there are these really uh, great pictures that you can find where someone will be sweating just from that little rectangle uh, where the tape was. And that just highlights that with the epidermal turnover, you get sweating again. So you really have to maintain treatment. Uh, there have been studies that look at aluminum chloride, um, some, you know, Pretty, pretty decent amount of patients. Um, when they're used properly in a lot of patients, you can get some improvement. Uh, the problem is uh, that there are often uh, some side effects uh, to these topical therapies, um, irritation and, and pruritus being the, the biggest among those. Uh, the reality of the irritation, though, is that it doesn't necessarily come from the medication itself. Uh, most people think that, you know, uh, these... these um, these topical uh, antiperspirants, the, the aluminum chloride preparations, most of them are a liquid, so they're in an alcohol base. And most people think that that's just very irritating to the sensitive skin on the underarm. And it's really that there's a chemical reaction that occurs between the aluminum chloride and the uh, water that's in the sweat uh, on the skin, and it forms hydrochloric acid. So it, you know, it's, it's forming a, a, an acid on the surface of the skin, which you can imagine is really very ir irritating, especially in a closed area like the, uh, like the axilla. So it's really important if you're prescribing this for your patients to give them good instructions on how to use it, because if you don't, uh, they're going you know, to use it improperly. It's going to be irritating, and then they're going to stop using it. So we always tell patients that you need to apply it to very dry skin, and sometimes that means using a cool hair dryer uh, blowing it on your underarms uh, uh, to, to make them dry before application. Uh, use it at nighttime because patients with hyperhidrosis tend to sweat far less when they're sleeping than during the day when they're having, um, you know, emotional triggers or just, you know, um, physical triggers, that kind of thing. Um, and then wash it off in the morning before they do start to have the triggers of daytime and uh, more sweat production. I don't recommend occlusion. So even on a lot of the package inserts for some of the, uh, the aluminum chloride preparations, uh, they talk about occlusion with saran wrap or something like that. And it, while it does increase penetration, um, we don't really need to increase penetration because it penetrates just fine. Um, the problem is that when you occlude the, the underarm, you tend to sweat more, and then, and then you get into that problem of increased irritation. So you really don't need to, don't need to occlude it in case, uh, in fact, that, that makes it uh, harder for some patients. 
So 20% formulation in alcohol is the most common, and that's what we know of as dry small hypercare. Certain dries and over-the-counter, that's a 12%. There's a dry cell mild, which is a 6%. And then there's a newer product called hydrosal, which is actually um, aluminum chloride mixed with a little bit of salicylic acid in a gel base. Um, they, in studies with this, uh, with this topical, they found that it was much better tolerated uh, than, uh, than the other preparations. The salicylic acid, um, it, it may contribute either by helping some of the, the penetration um, or, you know, there's some thought that it, it may actually be uh, contributing to the, the plugging of the ducts themselves, but we don't really have that all figured out yet. There's a website that you have to go on to get hydrosal. It's not prescription, but uh, it's not yet available just in stores. Uh, you have to go and order it from a website. With any of them, I recommend starting three times a week at nighttime uh, and then increasing as needed. Sometimes uh, if patients are, are um, more tolerant, I guess, of, of you know, potential irritations, they might start every night. Uh, some patients, if they tolerate it okay, but it's not treating their symptoms appropriately enough, they may need to increase to twice a day. Some patients, once they have dryness, they may decrease to uh, once a week, twice a week, um, just to sort of maintain uh, that plugging. I put in this, this last part on the slide, because uh, this comes up in clinic a lot, especially in PEDS clinic. Um, there, there are absolutely no studies showing a link between uh, aluminum products and either Alzheimer's or breast cancer. In fact, on the Alzheimer's Association website, the American Cancer Society, the Susan G. Komen for the Cure, the National Cancer Institutes and a bunch of other, um, a bunch of, bunch of other institutes, um, they have actual verbiage on the website that says there is no link between alumina products and and our, our you know fill in the blank. Um, there, there are just no studies that show that it's that it's a, a, an issue. So we'll move on to iantophoresis. Um, and iantophoresis is the passing of an ionized substance through intact skin by the application of a current to the, um, to the water. Uh, we don't really know how this works for hyperhidrosis, but we think it probably has to do with plugging as well because the, the tape stripping studies are also positive uh, in patients who are treated with hyperhidrosis with iantophoresis. Uh, iantophoresis was initially used actually as a... Um, a way to deliver medication to the body. The, um, the acrosyringium is a, um, is a place where it's really easy to pass uh, small substances through the skin. Um, and so they, they noticed that in these people when they were doing these studies in the 40s to try to um, you know, treat them with these medicines through this technique that they, were, they weren't sweating anymore in these areas. And so then uh, they, they decided to use it uh, for that purpose. Tap water is the most effective, so literally right out of the tap. Um, it's really most effective just sort of logistically for palmoplantar plantar disease. Um, we use water bath trays, which you can see in the pictures. Um, and they do, they, there, there are these pads that you're supposed to soak with the water and put in your underarms, but it just can't form enough of a connection to the skin, and, and they really, they don't work. They're not, they're not worth the time or the, um, the either time investment or the money investment for the patient. Uh, but palmo planter uh, are really very effective, can be effective. 
So there are two that are FDA approved for use uh, in the US. One is the Fisher unit and the other is the Dryonic. Uh, I have no affiliation with either of these companies. Um, I am not a fan of the Dryonic unit. Um, it's much cheaper for families, um, but there were, the, the last time they did studies on it were, were in the 80s, um, and really they did one study, and they showed some improvement. Um, actually, it was in 1984, and they had, um, most people in the study had 50% improvement after 20 days. And I guess at the time, they decided that that was enough improvement. But if you're sweating so much that you can't drive your car even 50% better, you're probably still sweating way too much to be OK. Um, the, the Fisher unit, um, is, it's much bigger. It's more expensive. Um, but it has a, a much better improvement rate at around 80%. Um, and that's not getting you 50% better. That's getting you dry, dry to dryness dry. The, uh, the Dryonic is smaller, it's battery operated, um, and the, the Fisher is, is bigger. The one in the picture uh, is, is the Fisher. So there are a lot of different treatment regimens that people will have with these. Um, most people will start, most, most providers will start three times a week um, until the patient is, is dry, which can take between two to four weeks, kind of depending on the patient and uh, how much energy they can tolerate. And then you, you taper down uh, the frequency of the treatments to a maintenance regimen. Uh, and the maintenance regimen uh, varies. For some people, it's still as often as twice a week. For some people, they're doing it once a month. Most people are every seven to 10 days, uh, somewhere in there. If you have someone who achieves dryness and then they, you know, they go on vacation and forget their unit, whatever, they, start, they get sweating back to baseline, you have to start over again. So this one is really important that once you get to dry, you need to you know, maintain therapy in order to, uh, to not have to start all the way over. When you do the treatment, uh, the current goes 10, 10 minutes in one direction, 10 minutes in the other direction. And you, really, you need to have both directions in order for the, the treatment to be effective. So if you're treating just your hands, uh, then it's 20 minutes. If you're treating your hands and your feet, then you're going to be 40 minutes. Uh, there are some side effects, and this is sort of what limits this therapy uh, in my practice. Um, it has sort of a pins and needles sensation, uh, almost like when your hands or your foot has fallen asleep and it's waking back up. It has that kind of prickly sensation. Um, I say mild shocks on there. Uh, if you take your hands out of the water while the current is still going, you can get a shock. Um, that's, that's true. I did, I did that. Um, it's, you know, it's... You can feel it, it's not gonna knock you out. It's not, you're not gonna get electrocuted from it, but you, know, you can feel it as a little, like you're touching a balloon kind of shock. Um, patients will have uh, some redness, especially along the water line, and you can get some tiny little, tiny little very superficial blisters and sometimes uh, some hyperpigmented um, little macules where those blisters were. The tolerance is widely variable. That's where this sort of gives people problems. Uh, is that the tolerance of that tingling sensation is, is so variable and it's really very unpredictable. So you can have you know, a football player um, who can't, you know, can't tolerate any jewels at all, get my hands out, get my hands out, and I have you know, a, a six-year-old kid, a, a little girl with pigtails who sits there and we're cranking it all the way up to the top. 
and she, she can tolerate it, she doesn't mind. It, that sensation, for whatever reason, is just tolerated so differently by different people. Uh, some of the units, you can rent them. So before a patient or their insurance actually purchases it, you can, you can rent it uh, to see if they're going to tolerate it. Um, or if, you, if there's a physician in your area or provider practice in your area that has iantophoresis. And some of you guys may have it in your offices. Um, you can you know, let the patient try it before they go through the, the process of trying to get it for home use. Uh, they've done studies uh, where they have added uh, glycopyrrolate to the water, and it's shown to um, increase the duration of dryness, not necessarily increase the, um, increase the efficacy of the uh, iatophoresis itself. Um, probably they're experiencing some absorption of the glycopyrrolate. That's probably why it's working. Um, A, because we know that the ianto is in, you know, first used to deliver medicines to the body, and B, because uh, when they have looked at these patients uh, putting glycopyrrolate in the water, they do get some um, side effects that are similar to the side effects that you get when you take glycopyrrolate systemically. There are some, uh, some contraindications. Um, some of them are, are for real contraindications. Um, pacemaker, defibrillator, um, a vagal nerve stimulator, things that you know, you've put into the body to send electricity places, probably don't want to mess with those. Um, a significant arrhythmia, a lot of people won't use it. Epilepsy, things that have to do with you know, just the body's electricity, pregnancy. Uh, and then some are relative contraindications. So you know, we ha I have on here metal implants, um, joint replacements that are in the path of the current. Um, it's really that, that those can get hot, and they can be sort of a hot spot for the patient. Uh, but if somebody has a shoulder replacement, uh, you, can, you, know, you can probably still be okay treating their, their feet. Um, or you know, if they, even if they have a shoulder replacement on the left, you could probably, if you wanted to, if they wanted to try it, still treat their right hand. Um, braces are fine. I get that question a lot because I have a lot of my patients have braces. Um, and, and I haven't had anybody have trouble with that. So it, there's, there's some common sense element to it. So moving on from iatophoresis uh, to botulinum toxin, which is sort of a big topic, um, but botulinum toxin is a natural purified protein that comes from Clostridium botulinum. Um, Botox A is most often used for hyperhidrosis, and there are, there are multiple that are used. Onobotulinum toxin A, which is Botox, that is FDA approved for the treatment of axillary hyperhidrosis. Abobotulinum toxin dysport in uh, Incobotulinum toxin have also been used but are, are not currently FDA approved uh, for treatment of hyperhidrosis in the United States. Botox B, or myoblock, has been reported, um, but there were a limited number of patients that were treated. There were some pretty nasty systemic side effects, so this really isn't one that anybody, nobody's really running with this one, uh, trying to, to see if it's going to be a viable contender. So the rest of my slides about botulinum toxin, for the most part, are about onobotulinum toxin A because that is the one that's FDA approved. It works by inhibiting release of acetylcholine from the presynaptic terminal, so it, it, it disrupts the signal. So it doesn't matter if you have too much signal or if you have too much response to a normal amount of signal, it doesn't matter. Either way, the Botox gets in the way and it stops the process. 
botulinum toxin, uh, onobotulinum toxin was first used for non-muscular use in 1994. They noticed that patients who were treated for hemifacial spasms had decreased in sweating on that side of the face. And so then it was, they tried it in patients with Fry syndrome because uh, it was also on the face, uh, and they, they had improvement of their hyperhidrosis. As I said, it's uh, FDA approved for uh, adult patients with axillary hyperhidrosis. That happened in 2004. And the way that the FDA approval, the way that the document stands, is that it's approved in adult patients who fail topical antiperspirants. So at least as far as the FDA language, which unfortunately isn't always the same as the insurance language, you really only have to fail a topical antiperspirant in order to qualify for Botox, for botulinum toxin. Uh, when we're talking uh, more specifically about how much and what we're doing with onobotulinum toxin uh, for axillary hyperhidrosis, the standard therapy is 50 units per axilla, and they've done studies looking at using more, uh, more than that, but really there wasn't, Im there wasn't any more improvement uh, for, the most, uh, for the majority of these patients when they used any more units. Uh, so 50 units per axilla. It's a deep dermal, right at the deep dermal sub-Q injection, and you inject about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters apart. Um, sometimes people will have, um, actually a lot of times from the pharmaceutical reps, um, these grid things that you can mark out the dots, um, and they're, they're really close together. Um, you really don't need to inject uh, that close together. You're going to give somebody way more than they need. Uh, they really only need to be about a centimeter and a half to two centimeters apart. Uh, and the reason for that is that when you dilute the botulinum toxin um, uh, with four cc's of saline uh, to your uh, 100 units in the vial, when you dilute it like that, it has about two centimeters of diffusion in the skin. And so if you, you, know, if you, make, if you make your grid in the underarm, with your dots being about every one and a half to two centimeters, with the overlap of them, you're going to get the whole underarm. So you really don't need to have them so close together. Doing the, the spacing that I'm talking about, you get about 10 to 15 injection sites per axilla, which is, which is tolerable for the vast, vast majority of patients. Uh, almost half, but half, have resolution of their sweating within one week. So it really it doesn't take very long uh, to kick in. Most patients, uh, I tell them, you know, you're going to start to notice a difference at about three days. You're going to have almost all you're going to get at about a week, and really full improvement that you're going to get at two weeks. The average duration is about six to eight months, 205 days. Now, when they did these studies, that was until patients were back to their baseline. Uh, so when you're treating patients in the office, they don't necessarily make it to six to eight months, and you're starting to feel like you're not doing it right, and it's really just because when people have experienced the improvement from the therapy, they don't want to get back to baseline. Uh, they, you know, they're going to come back before they get that bad, and so it's going to, it's going to seem like they're not getting the full uh, duration, but they, they really are. Um, uh, problems that people have with botulinum toxin, really not too much in the underarms. Um, minimal injection site discomfort at the time. I don't use any anesthesia, I don't use any ice, I don't use any EMLA, even in my kids and teenagers, um, and they all do fine. Um, honestly, it's mostly about technique um, and you know, decreasing the number of injection points and, and things like that that you, can, um, that you have control over. Uh, sometimes get some bruising right at the injection points, but that's not so bad. They last a couple days. 
Uh, with axillary hyperhidrosis, there's been no proven compensatory sweating or significant muscle weakness uh, after treatment. Um, sometimes people will ask about this. Um, you would have to get really lost with your needle uh, in order to get them muscle weakness from axillary therapy. So this is a, a, a pictorial of a minor starch iodine test, uh, which I think is really helpful to do in the office. It's really cheap. It's really easy. Um, insurance isn't going to pay you for it, unfortunately. Um, so you're sort of doing it just for you. But it can be really, uh, it can be really very helpful if you're seeing somebody, um, especially at the time of treatment with botulinum toxin. So you paint on uh, some, uh, some betadine. I just use you know, the betadine swabs out of the pack. Um, you paint on uh, uh, an area in their axilla, usually a couple centimeters bigger than what you can see their hair-bearing area to be. Um, most people are going to be sweating from their hair-bearing area, but sometimes they'll, they'll get out of that, and you, you want to be delineating where they're sweating so that you know where to treat with your botulinum toxin. So you, you paint on the betadine, and you, you, uh, you dabble on uh, some cornstarch. Just I get it at the grocery store, just regular cornstarch. Uh, you can't wipe it. You kind of have to we kind of zhuzh up a, um, a little four-by-four four gauze thing and kind of dab it on there. It doesn't have to be very thick. Definitely you don't want to wipe because if they're sweating, you're just going to smear it all around and then you have no idea where you're at. And when they sweat, when they get any liquid in the area, it turns black. The, the chemical reaction of the two things together uh, turns black. And it shows you exactly where someone is sweating. So the patient, uh, the, the armpits in the uh, bottom right, is someone who has had a positive starch iodine test, and you can see that where the black area is, that's where she's sweating. And some patients uh, will sweat from exactly their hair-bearing area. Some patients will sweat from a huge area that's way bigger than their hair. Uh, some patients will sweat from an area the size of a half-dollar coin that's way smaller than their hair-bearing area. Some people have sort of a wonky little uh, a wonky little area of sweating, especially women, that sort of goes down towards the mammary tissue. Um, if you don't do this before you treat, then you're not necessarily going to know that you're getting all of their, their sweating area. Most of the time, yes, absolutely, you're going you're to be treating the right spot. But um, I just usually do this the first time that I'm treating somebody. Um, and then if there's not something kind of funky about their positive starch iodine, then I don't necessarily repeat it when they come back. But I have absolutely had um, patients who have had some really funny starch iodines, and it, it changes how I do the therapy. We also use onobotulinum toxin for uh, palmar uh, hyperhidrosis. This is off-label. Uh, it's doses that are technically uh, and typically much higher than those for axillary hyperhidrosis. We're usually using 100 to 200 units per palm, so a lot more. Um, it's a lot more injection points. Um, we put these closer together because in the thick skin of the palms and in the thick skins of the, the soles, the medication doesn't diffuse as far. So you do have to put them a little bit closer together in these areas. Um, I still don't like the grids necessarily because I think they make it uh, hard to actually accomplish your goal. Uh, but suffice to say that you're going to get a little bit closer. You have rapid onset that's very similar to that of the axillary treatment, but the duration of action is going to be shorter, uh, more like four to five months than the six to eight months. 
in this area uh, on the hand, especially over the, the thenar muscles, um, you can experience some weakness. Um, I mean, patients, you, you definitely, you know, if you, if you are doing this therapy, you definitely will have patients that notice this weakness. And it's not weakness, you know, like I can't function in my life. It's weakness um, like I have a hard time turning a really sticky doorknob or um, I have a hard time pinching and zipping up my really tight skinny jeans. You know, things that require a really tight pincer grasp, they, they might have more trouble than usual with. Um, the duration of that weakness does not usually, that doesn't last as long as the improvement in their sweating. So that goes away faster than, than their sweating will come back. It usually only lasts a couple of weeks. Uh, really on the palms, in, uh, injection site pain is the main limiting factor. Uh, it really hurts, really hurts a lot. Uh, so you have to have a patient who's motivated. They've done a lot of different things to try to get around the pain, um, nerve blocks, anesthesia, ice, vibration, pressure, cooling, all kinds of different things. Um, and everybody has a little bit of a different technique for making it work. Um, kind of the main thing is, uh, is probably careful patient selection. Because uh, even with the best of, of techniques and tricks and things that we have to do, if you have a patient who you know, is not going to tolerate it. They're just not going to tolerate it, whatever you're going to do to them. So, uh, We also use it for other areas of uh, primary focal hyperhidrosis, craniofacial area, Fry syndrome, like I talked about, plantar. I mean, literally any area of the body, you can use botulinotoxin. You can uh, treat over the sternum, the inframammary uh, area, the buttocks, the groin, any place. Uh, it's also been reported as an uh, effective treatment for compensatory sweating. It's not terribly effective for most areas of compensatory sweating, as we'll talk a little bit about, because they're big areas usually. But uh, there are some contraindications, as you can imagine. Previous adverse reaction, any infection in the area that you want to treat. You don't, we don't necessarily tend to stick needles into areas that are infected, uh, unless we're trying to treat the infection. Um, peripheral motor neuron disease, um, uh, such as AML, is a contraindication. Um, but you can, you can use it in some patients who do have some, uh, some neurologic disorder, some, even some motor neuron disease. I've used it uh, in a girl who had Charcot-Marie Tooth, um, and you know, there was a lot of lit searching and uh, phone calls to the neurologist, I'll admit, but I mean, she did, she did great. Um, myasthenia gravis and then pregnancy and lactation are also contraindications. So that is botulinum toxin. Um, which for a lot of us who treat a lot of hyperhidrosis really has become almost, you know, a second-line therapy after the topicals for a lot of patients. Uh, systemic medicines, uh, we'll move on to, to speaking of systemic medicines. Um, uh, the use of these is based mainly on anecdotal evidence. Really, there just aren't, you know, any big randomized control trials of these things for, for hyperhidrosis. Um, they have the potential to be really very effective, especially for patients who have generalized uh, symptoms. That's mainly who, who I'll use it for. Uh, but if you have somebody who is either having insurance problems uh, or some other reason that they you know, can't handle or can't get uh, treatment for their focal disease, it, it is also effective for that. It just is a little bit of overkill uh, sometimes. Um, the most commonly used systemic medications are anticholinergic medications, uh, but lots of others have been used uh, and are helpful in certain kinds of, of hyperhidrosis, kind of situational hyperhidrosis. So if you have somebody who 
really the only time that their hyperhidrosis is a big issue for them is before a talk, then maybe a beta blocker is something that can, you know, sort of calm, calm things down enough that they can uh, get past it. Uh, clonidine uh, has been used in patients with flushing, so if they have a lot of flushing um, together with their hyperhidrosis, especially facial, craniofacial, um, that's been used together. Uh, who do we choose uh, to give systemic medications? Um, patients who have multiple areas of involvement, generalized disease, as I said. Um, patients who have uh, craniofacial disease, because some of the other therapies just really aren't logical. You know, the, the logistics of, of that is difficult. You can't do ionto to your face. Um, you know, I've, I've used some of the topicals, but the, the dryness that they get, the problems that they get as secondary to it just makes it sort of, sort of really difficult. So um, the systemic medications become uh, higher up on the list. If they fail other things, uh, uh, or sometimes I'll use it in addition to other things as a multi-therapy approach. So the anticholinergic medications, uh, they're competitive antagonists of the uh, acetylcholine at the muscarinic receptor. We use them for, for all kinds of things, but a lot of times we're using them uh, for hypersecretory states, so drooling or things like that, or urinary voiding dysfunction, uh, so hyperactive bladder. Um, we use them with caution in patients with arrhythmia, arrhythmia bladder outflow uh, obstruction, some GI problems, such as inflammatory bowel disease, uh, and it's contraindicated in patients with uh, pyloric stenosis, paralytic ileus, myasthenia gravis, and narrow angle glaucoma. Uh, they block the sympathetic stimulation of eccrine glands, um, and it's really the sympathetic, pardon me, it's really the systemic side effects that limit uh, their use. You know, the muscarinic receptor, receptors are found all over the body, and, and so you're not going to just get the effect where you want it. Unfortunately, you're going to get it at all the muscarinic receptors. Um, dry mouth, tachycardia, urinary retention, uh, constipation, some visual disturbances, dry eyes, some headache, the potential for overheating. So the list is long, and there's usually a pretty lengthy discussion that I'm having with patients uh, when we're using these medications. Um, but for the most part, they're either side effects that the patients are, are happy to tolerate to have improvement in their hyperhidrosis, uh, or they're things that don't happen enough, uh, you know, they don't happen terribly often. Um, so I, I don't have patients who have a lot of trouble with them. The most common two that are used for hyperhidrosis are glycopyrrolate, or, or robinol uh, is the trade name, and oxybutynin, or ditropan. Uh, I'll say here that neither of these medications is FDA approved for the use of hyperhidrosis. Uh, glycopyrrolate um, is the overall most commonly prescribed anticholinergic medication for hyperhidrosis. Um, there have been a bunch of studies, um, small studies, case reports, that kind of thing. Um, in one, they looked at 24 patients, so not a ton. They gave them two milligrams twice a day of glycopyrrolate, and 79% uh, of the patients showed improvement. Um, dry mouth was the most common problem that they experienced, um, and that happened in, in about a third of the patients. So, I mean, that I tell everybody to expect dry mouth. You're going to get you're going to get dry mouth. Here are the ways to you know here are the things that you can do to make it more more tolerable. Tolerable. My, my uh, Robinol's kicking in. Um, Robinol doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier, so in theory it should have lower incidence of CNS problems like the visual disturbances and the headaches and things like that than other anticholinergic medications. 
Dosing of lycopyrrolate, um, I usually start patients at a low dose and have them increase their dose slowly until either their side effects are more than they want to handle or their sweating is controlled to a degree that they are happy with. Um, so start with one milligram tablet one time a day and I have them increase usually every one to two weeks. Uh, they add one extra tablet per day once, you know, once weekly. So they'll go from once a day to twice a day and then two in the morning, one at night to kind of ramp up like that. You max out usually right around four milligrams twice a day. Not very many people actually can tolerate four milligrams twice a day because um, they'll have side effects that are, uh, that are too much for them. Uh, but certainly some patients, uh, if, you know, if they're just not uh, as sensitive to the side effects, you know, we'll, we'll get there and some will get there and still will be having sweating that is more than they want to, to tolerate. Uh, there have been no randomized controlled uh, placebo-controlled uh, placebo trials for oxybutynin in, in hyperhidrosis. It's the most commonly prescribed uh, anticholinergic medication in children because it's used in bedwetting. Um, so there have been more, more recent studies on safety and efficacy and that kind of thing for bedwetting um, in children with oxybutynin. Uh, they looked at 139 patients, 80% had improvement, they had similar side effects to the robinol, the glycopyrrolate study, dry mouth, some headache, a little urinary retention. Um, when they're using it for bed wetting, they're actually trying to get the urinary retention. Uh, it just happens to be something that comes along sometimes uh, when you were using it for something else. Uh, so the dosing of oxybutynin is a little bit different. It comes, uh, I sometimes talk to families about the rule of fives with oxybutynin. Um, so it comes as five milligram tablets. Um, the suspension is five milligrams per five milliliters. Um, so you start with one tablet a day, uh, at, but you, you, and you increase the same way that you do with the glycopyrrolate, but usually I max out at two tablets twice a day. So you max out uh, with, with fewer tablets of the, the oxybutynin. Um, there is a suspension. There's, there are suspensions of, of both. Um, the glycopyrrolate and the oxybutynin can have an easier time finding the suspension of the oxybutynin because it's, uh, it's uh, more commonly used in, in kids, uh, at least it has been recently. Um, uh, the, I will say that there is an extended, um, an extended release tablet of ditropan, so if you're writing it, you have to make sure that you're not writing the, the XL um, unless you are intending to, um, but then the dosing is different. As I said, uh, the oxybutynin is most commonly used uh, anticholinergic in kids for all uses, um, and they uh, have done some studies, some small studies still, because in pediatric, none of the studies are very big, usually. 17.2% um, uh, of kids in this study had uh, an adverse drug rate, but it was stuff like a little bit of constipation, the dry mouth that we talked about. There weren't any serious uh, adverse drug uh, events in that study. Just going to talk a little bit about surgical stuff. Um, really, the main reason to know about surgical treatments of hyperhidrosis uh, for us is so that you can have a good conversation with your patient when they ask you questions about it. Because if you're speaking about hyperhidrosis, they're going to ask you questions about it, um, and so that you can uh, know uh, what you're talking about when uh, when you're describing uh, some of the, the therapies and the surgeries to them. So endoscopic thoracic sympathectomy, or ETS, uh, surgery is surgical interruption of the thoracic sympathetic chain. It literally 
clips or clamps or ablates the sympathetic chain. Uh, it, it's getting rid of the, the pathway for the signal. Uh, it's remarkably effective. Uh, dry palms in 95 to 100% of patients who have it. Um, it improves craniofacial. Um, it's a little bit less effective for axillary sweating, um, uh, but still it is really, really relatively effective. Um, the problem with uh, ETS surgery are the complications, um, compensatory sweating being the, <clears throat> the, main, the main one. Um, the, the, the range there of, uh, of incidence is, you know, 3 to 98%. Um, you, can, you can imagine whose literature the 3% the comes out of, but um, most, of the, most of the studies, most of the places where you're looking at numbers for this is right around 80%. I mean, it's way, it's way more than half. Um, so when someone, whether it's you or a surgeon or anyone is having a discussion with a patient about compensatory sweating and about ETS surgery, you have to, you really should broach it to them in a, you know, you should expect this side effect and would you be okay with it? Will you be okay with it when you have this side effect? Um, and if, you know, if they really don't think that they would be, then probably ETS is not right for them. Um, compensatory sweating uh, is often truncal, um, and it's usually very large areas, so the full back, the full buttocks, it is unfortunately a lot of times in the groin and buttocks as well, um, the chest, abdomen, um, and it can be really, for some patients, it's, it's as emotionally debilitating as their sweating was in the first place. For some patients, though, even if they have very bad compensatory sweating, it still is an upgrade for them. Um, I treated a patient who was an attorney, and he was literally unable to do his job because, you know, he couldn't shake people's hands. He couldn't, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's a job of, of papers and papers and papers, and he, you know, would mess up court documents. I mean, he, he couldn't function in his, in his profession with his palmar sweating as bad as it was. So, you know, he had ETS surgery, and he had horrible compensatory sweating. Uh, but his palms, his palms were, were clear. His palms didn't sweat anymore. So he could do his job. He had to change his jacket a couple of times during a long case. You know, I mean, he still had to do things to overcome the issue. Um, but for him, it was an upgrade. For a lot of people, it's, it's not. It's really very patient dependent. Um, so as I said, it's really important to know you know, to know some about this so that you can have an educated discussion with your patients. It's also really important to know your local providers who are, who are doing the surgeries. Um, or it's important to know if there aren't any good local people doing the surgeries. Um, you really, you know, you don't want to refer to someone who does one once a year uh, or every other year, or I did one in fellowship one time. Um, I mean, it really, you know, this is the kind of surgery it should be done by somebody who does, does it a lot. In some communities, um, CT surgeons do it. In some communities, neurosurgery does it. It varies a little bit. Um, but most people, if they do this a lot on, on their website or in their bio, somewhere, somewhere they'll talk about it um, as something that, that they do. And, and even knowing them and meeting them, you know, if you have the opportunity um, so that you guys are on the same page uh, about, you know, who is an appropriate candidate. Because uh, some, you know, some surgeons are very skilled, but, you know, they, they're not very skilled at having the full discussion about stuff, and that's really not very much better for the patient, because there have been a lot of studies showing that even really very skilled surgeons doing ETS surgery, the complication rates, the, C, the uh, compensatory sweating rates are, are very similar. There are some local surgical uh, treatments for hyperhidrosis. These are really only for axillary sweating, because uh, you can imagine that um, you can't really 
get to the sweat glands and the palms very easily without getting into stuff that you don't want to get into. Um, there are three main options. Um, you can either do a huge uh, excision of the axillary skin, which is relatively effective but pretty disfiguring. Um, you can do a small ellipse and do either some curettage or some liposuction around it, um, or some people will make an incision uh, and then use a combination uh, or one or the other of curettage and liposuction uh, underneath the surface of the skin to sort of scrape off and, and suck out the glands. Um, I, I don't describe that very elegantly. I'm sure the surgeons would do a much better job of that. Um, you can get some, some decent improvement, you know, up to 80, 90% improvement. Um, there's more downtime with this than there are with things like the botulinum, uh, the botulinum therapies. Um, most people are out of work uh, three to seven days, something like that. Usually they have drains for a couple of days out of the, out of the underarms. Um, there's more risk of infection, but you know, in the, in the studies, the reports that are out there, it's not, it's not too bad. Um, I have uh, sent people, you know, for focal therapies. There's a plastic surgeon uh, in Milwaukee who uh, was a big pioneer of this stuff. Um, he did a lot of them. It was a big deal for him. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought it was appropriate to send patients who were either, um, well, if they asked about it, uh, and I thought they were appropriate, or, you know, if, if they're paying out of pocket, a lot of times these surgeries are, you know, they're in the three to $5,000 range, so they're, they're expensive. But, you know, if you're paying out of pocket every time for your botulinum toxin, that's usually around $1,000, $1,500 a treatment, so it doesn't, it doesn't take very long before you add up to, you might as well just try the, the surgical therapy. Um, you know, but for a lot of patients, they want to stick with something that's much less invasive, and I, you know, I also like to stick with something that's, that's less invasive when you have that option. Uh, and really, very briefly, there are some emerging therapies. Um, there's something called the MiraDry system, uh, which is microwave technology uh, to use thermolysis on the sweat glands. Um, it's cleared by the FDA. Um, it's really just now, I think, it's being used in the underarms. Um, they do local anesthesia, um, and they, they pass um, the tip of the probe uh, over the underarms. Um, it's pretty painful without anesthesia, um, but uh, they had some decent, decent improvement with that. So in summary, um, there are millions of people, uh, millions of people of all ages who suffer from hyperhidrosis. I assure you that you know people with hyperhidrosis, even if you don't think that you know people with hyperhidrosis, I, I promise you that you do. Um, they might not know that they have hyperhidrosis. Um, you can improve, uh, pardon me, all aspects of the quality of life of these patients are affected, and you can improve all the aspects of the quality of life of these patients um, with some really very easy therapies. Um, in general, you wanna assess uh, the location and the quality of their hyperhidrosis, their quality of life, and then you want to decide on therapy, which is usually uh, based on um, what they've had and what areas of the body are sweating. Start with topicals and then move on and add ionto, uh, botulinum toxin, orals as the site of the sweating and the symptoms warrant. Um, and then sometimes you're going to refer for surgical therapy, but um, you really need to be prudent and, and know what you're talking about. Have the discussion with them as if you were going to be the one to do it uh, and knowing your surgeon so that you know that you're sending them to someone who knows what they're doing. 
Um, there, are, there are some uh, clinics that are dedicated to hyperhidrosis. They're few and far between, unfortunately. Um, Milwaukee has one uh, that I was very, very sad to leave behind, uh, but it's still going on. Uh, actually, my, uh, the physician assistant that I worked with in Milwaukee has taken it over, and so she is now championing the cause in the, in the Milwaukee area. St. Louis has one. Um, there's one in Eastern Virginia, um, and there's soon to be one in uh, Central Texas. Um, the International Hyperhidrosis Society has a great website, uh, sweathelp.org. Um, there's a physician finder for, uh, for finding people in your community who uh, have an interest in treating hyperhidrosis and to do it uh, hopefully with some frequency. Uh, there are conferences that you can attend that are really great, um, uh, lectures and some, uh, some actual patient injecting and stuff in the afternoon. Um, and then there are also patient education materials that you can order. Um, but even if you just refer them to the website, uh, they divide it into a section for uh, teenagers, a section for adults, and a section for physicians and providers so that you know, they all kind of have the same information, but it's presented in a way that, that makes sense to the, to the audience uh, and so that they actually get something out of it. Uh, and then, as I said, you really can change people's lives pretty big time. Uh, so go do it. A couple of quick questions for sure. you. Um, for the aluminum chloride, you said to wash it off in the morning. What mm -hmm. do you suggest they wear then after they wash it off, or the days of the week that they don't use it? You can, you can wear just a regular antiperspirant. Um, some patients, if, if they need to, they'll use the clinical strength mm -hmm. you know, on the off days or in the mornings. Uh, or some patients, if they're, if they're dry, I mean, they really only, you know, if they want to, they can just use a deodorant, not even an antiperspirant. Okay, and how do you suggest that they use aluminum chloride on the hands? On the hands? So the, the hands are a little bit trickier um, than the underarms for some patients, but it, some of the, the technique is very similar. You just have to make sure that it's really very dry, and they, you just apply it uh, onto the hands. Um, you want to try to avoid the web spaces of the fingers because that often gets you know, much more irritated more easily than the palms and soles. Uh, for some patients, for a lot of patients, they need to do twice a day if they're going to tolerate it on the, on the palms or soles. Um, and for some patients, even 20% 20, even 20 twice a day isn't enough. You can get formulations of 35%, but you, you have to have it like compounded. You know, somebody has to sort of make it for you. And then you're definitely getting into that uh, arena where irritation is going to be a big factor. But you, you can do that. No occlusion. I, yeah, I still don't use occlusion. I mean, the, it's really, it's the sweating plus the aluminum chloride that gives you that, that uh, irritation. Thank you. Sure. Botox is indicated for adults 18 and over. You mentioned teenagers. Are you using it off-label in your teenagers? I am. Mm -hmm. And at what age, at what age will you go down to? Uh, my youngest patient uh, is 12. Uh, my youngest patient is 12, but you know, most of the time for axillary hyperhidrosis, that's starting when they're sort of getting into puberty. So you're, you're not usually going to run into you know, the five-year-old that is having a lot of axillary stuff. Um, you know, it's, been, it's been used um, in even younger pediatric patients for palmoplantar sweating, um, but you're really getting into trouble with the tolerability then. Um, uh, I, I haven't yet started to do it, but uh, I'm you know, going to, I think in, in Texas and Austin where I'm, I'm starting, um, 
you know, going to see if, if we can work it out with the pediatric, the peds anesthesia people to see if there's, I don't know, some sort of sedation that's, you know, I don't know. You, you, you got to balance the risks that you're putting in and, this, you know, that, that you're, the reward that you're getting. The Botox itself is used all the time in very young pediatric patients for other things in, in huge amounts. So, you know, the, the safety of the Botox in, or the botulinum toxin in the pediatric patients is really not the question. I mean, you're getting more into problems with, uh, you know, the anesthesia and the risks of the anesthesia and that kind of stuff. And insurance companies paying for it? Um, with, the, uh, with the axillary, you have a much easier time. Um, with the, the palms and soles, you often have a really difficult time. Thank you. Sure. You probably aren't needing to use as many units. I mean, you know, we talked about the 100 to 200 units for, you know, for the adult, for big people, palms. Um, but, you know, if you have a, a small child's hand, you know, you're, you're using far less than that. So. Thank you for both talks. Um, I did wondered if you had any preference, uh, preference of Botox versus Dysport, you know, if, if you had any, you know, what your experience was, and uh, again, if you just had any preference. Um, you know, my experience really has only been with, with botulinum toxin with, with Botox brand. Um, and that's just because it's where, that's what we used where I trained. Uh, I'm really happy with it. Um, so for me, it kind of falls into the, you know, it's not broken, so I don't want I don't, to, I don't yet have a reason to want to try something different. Um, I know that, that certainly other physicians uh, are, are using it. Um, I don't know, you know, I don't think that there, I don't think that there have been shown to be enough benefits or, you know, differences of it that, you know, make it, um, make it enough better or enough different or something different about it that I, I want to start to use it. But certainly a physician who has more comfort, you know, who, who most of their comfort is with, um, is with Dysport, then they may, you know, they may feel more comfortable using it. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. The slide about medications that potentially could cause mm -hmm. hydrosis went by pretty quickly, so mm -hmm. I didn't catch the whole thing, but I saw loratadine on there. Mm -hmm. Does that one cause more of that particular side effect than the other antihistamines, and does it make a difference first generation, second generation, third? Um, I think that multiple of the antihistamines are listed uh, on, I mean, it really is a, a multi-page fine print list. Um, on, my, on my patient question intake thing where I'm asking about medications, I just have listed on there anti, antihistamines, just sort of blanket asking about it. I mean, you know, the reality is that even with, you know, all of those medications, most people are taking them, um, a lot of them, on sort of an as-needed basis. And so it's not usually the thing that's causing the hyperhidrosis, especially not in kids. Um, the, the drug associated is much more of an adult, uh, of an adult issue with you know, some of the, the medications that are started for a, a longer term problem. Um, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on the craniofacial. Mm -hmm. um, is it safe to use um, the aluminum chloride? Do you use the, the, one of the lower strengths that you would use first, or do you just go right to Botox? Or um, well, I when I've run into that, I still start. I still try to use one of the topicals. Um, I actually have used more of the hydrosal um, product with craniofacial stuff, just honestly for ease of application. Um, and, you know, if you can have a little bit of better tolerability, 
on the face makes a really big difference. Um, it, you know, none of them are perfect, and it's it's all it's all getting into this balance of you know, am I getting irritation, backing off, am I then having sweating? Um, but you know, even for getting the botulinum toxin uh, approved, they need to have failed a topical. Yeah. But I usually start. I usually don't start with the 20% uh, in in alcohol solution for that. Thank you. Thank you.